0: And welcome to From the Center, the podcast for the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges. I'm the director of the Center for Western Studies. And I am proud to be back here with our old host and good friend, Jack Vowell. Jack, glad to have you back, buddy. Glad to see you again, sir. Yeah, it's good to have you back. We've been, you know, for many, many years, actually, you've been the host and kicked off this this podcast. But uh, these last few uh, months, you've had your hands full, haven't you?
1: Well, I mean, goodness. Uh, daughter's about to turn two. Wife is going to give birth to our next daughter probably in a month. In a month, yeah. Yeah. And our dog just had her puppies. Oh my gosh, that's right. (laughs) It's been kind of baby (laughs) central over there for the last last couple weeks. And, you know, yeah, I've been uh, trying to stick my put my nose to the grind with the PhD. I got done with my prospectus way to go last semester, which is a fancy term for like a giant essay you write to justify why you get to write the even bigger thing Uh that you have to write to get the PhD. But uh, that's well, what I've been doing. That's,
0: that's incredible. Well, we've missed having you as around regularly, uh, but you've still been doing some lectures for us. Yeah. Uh, I know you were meeting with the students, I think, on Brave New World uh, last week or uh-huh. this week, maybe. And uh, and we've got you down for a lecture next week on uh, the Fairy Queen. So you're still involved uh, with us. I'm still here. You guys can't shake me that easily. Can't you? Tra- <laughs> but boy, working on a PhD and a second child, and uh, and uh, and then you're teaching at the at the school. I know, and you're teaching at the university as well. Yes. So you've got your hands full.
1: Well, I know. I mean, I've been pretty busy the last years. I heard you've been busy over here. Like I heard, I saw your YouTube video. Ah, about oh. that online seminar thing.
0: Yes, 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 yes. That's right. That's been uh, up and up and running now. We've we've started an online humanities seminar for you know adults all around the country, around the world, I guess technically, but around the country anyway. Uh, to to try and do some of the sort of cultural analysis work that we do with our students with adults. So uh, we've got, we had a really great turnout for our first.
1: How many people showed up for the first?
0: Well, we we have, I think 32 uh, paid customers. Now I think only 27 or so were able to come that night, but that's still pretty good. It's $140 for the series and it's a seven session series. Okay. So we had our first one uh, last Tuesday and our next one is on February 9th. We talked about Hamlet and the the crisis of authority in the the 16th century, Mm -hmm. uh, and how Hamlet actually plays into that uh, that moment. Some of the things that we teach the students here, you know, at the center. And then uh, next week we're going to do. Next time we're going to do. the music from the ballet *Romeo and Juliet* by Prokofiev, oh. one of my very favorite things. Nice. So we'll talk about music then. It's, a, it's an eclectic bunch of of, of art, artifacts, as it were, that we're going to talk about. We're including Flannery O'Connor and C.S. Lewis and and uh, Roger Scruton, uh, the paintings of Vermeer, uh, Schubert a uh, Schubert Mass that so we're going to talk about. So like
1: talking about books, this is like right. paintings, music, all kinds of stuff.
0: That's right. That's right. Exactly. And we think, well, we'll cover a, a wide variety and a wide uh, uh, chronology of, uh, uh, you know, options.
1: You know, I have an odd sort of connection with my wife when it comes to, like, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. Really? Years ago, right before I started dating her. Yeah? You were going to take our batch of center students to go see Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet down at the Playhouse on the Square, I think it was? To... No, it was, the, it was the Playhouse down the is Square. Okay. The reason why I remember is because it was a very, like, kind of cramped studio because they don't have a lot of room. Oh. And... You had hyped up the music so much. Oh yeah. Gone over it so much. And then we go there, and that place doesn't have room for an orchestra pit. So they had to use a recording. Oh, I see, right. And I was right. so disappointed. <laughs> I was just so utterly dejected inside. I was wow. like, I want to see a ballet with actual orchestral music, dang it. So I like immediately the next day was I was I knew that Memphis puts on the Nutcracker every December. Yes. At the Orpheum. And I was like, I'm gonna Go to that. I'm gonna to go to that. And like a week later, I was suddenly dating this girl, and I was like, I wonder if she would want to go. The- uh huh. So I want to buying an extra ticket just in case. Ah-ha-ha, uh-huh, it like smart. In December. So, it's because you hyped up Prokofiev so much. It was just like I was... Because uh, you had taught your Prokofiev stuff then and I was just like, yeah. oh, I want to hear it in person. And I didn't. I was really disappointed.
0: So I can take credit for your successful marriage and your two children and all your successes. Yeah, is so that what all you're saying? Your I'm, 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 it's about time somebody gave me credit That's for these things.
1: Recognition. I know everyone <laughs> in the audience is just like, finally! Finally! Like, for goodness sake! <laughs>
0: Oh, i 'm thrilled that 's great. Well, it is wonderful music, and i I love that ballet. I think it was the first ballet apart from the Nutcracker. I went to the Nutcracker when I was a child, and so on and i 'm sure i didn 't pay much attention but you know when you 're eight or whatever but But uh, when I was in college, uh, a buddy of mine said look let 's go down to the to the uh, Kennedy Center and see the Royal Danish Ballet do the Romeo and Juliet ballet. And I was a theater guy, I loved theater, I loved uh, you know, opera, I was studying opera, I was studying uh, classical music and so on. But all but I thought ballet, I don't know about ballet. I, I mean not I to then I got re- to say anything an entire evening with not a single word spoken or sung, right. you know. And I I said okay, I'll go cuz he kind of talk me into it. And I uh, went down there and I, I promise I sat there with my mouth open the whole time thinking, this is the most astonishing thing I've ever seen. These people so well-trained to be able to do such incredible things with their bodies. Um, it's, it's athletic at the point of, well, art. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's marvelous. And then the music is so stunning. I, anyway, I, I'm real thrilled about it. And I. people sometimes would say to me, well, you're a music director at a church. I guess that means you get to do whatever music you like best. And I said, I would say, if it were up to me, we would do Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet <laughs> ballet music every Sunday. <laughs> but that's that what trans- I really like.
1: You better like. have that transcendent experience. I'm just saying. <laughs> right, That's right. See, folks, this is what you get if you line up in these seminars, not some dusty, academic speak you get basically a nerd just going on and on and on. it's so true nerding out about this stuff which is the best kind of teaching oh i think so too
0: i think so too we try and pass on our enthusiasm for these things don't we Mm -hmm. i can't wait for the students to get to hear you talk about uh, uh, red cross and uh, and uh, the fairy queen because i know you're as nerdy and as enthusiastic about that as i am about about ballet well, thanks for asking about that. It's not too late for people to join in. They can still sign up for it. If they want to sign up for our online seminar, they can write to me at director at uh, and we'll put you on the list. Now, to subject at hand. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the influence of this uh, critical theory mindset that has uh, uh, pervaded certainly academia, but now I think even in the churches you 're beginning to see even in evangelical churches, beginning to see a uh, an influence there and Two weeks ago, Kyle and I talked about the biblical notion of of uh, justice, mm. and then last week talked with uh, Ronnie Stevens uh, about the biblical notion of forgiveness, and I thought those are two key elements to put in to our sort of mosaic uh, in order to try and make sense of our day. But there's an idea, I think, or a set of ideas that is uh, so pervasive now and so influential, it would be good for us to sort of trace the history of it. And I know that that's something that you've been dealing with a lot lately with your PhD. Mm -hmm. So can I ask you to tell us a little bit about what your PhD is about, really, I think, sure. and then kind of show why this thing has an influence on what you're hoping to accomplish with your PhD.
1: Sure. When I get my PhD, it'll technically be like a PhD in literary and cultural studies, is what it's yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because we just can't you know, do a literature degree. And that basically means I'm one of the, I'll become one of those hoity-toity intellectual types who comments upon culture. Okay. Right, and basically, I guess to be more fair to it, it's like you're—it's learning how to read culture. All right, learning how to read all the artifacts and facets of it, whether it's like books or you know uh, 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 movies or music or whatever. Like right. Basically, getting some kind of tools to. Read culture itself.
0: Hey, let me ask you something quick before you go on forth. Roger Scruton likes to t- distinguish between civilization and culture, and I wonder if you agree with him. Um, he says something like, as you know, he says something like, um, uh, culture is the means by which a civilization communicates itself mm-hmm. and its values, yeah.
1: and so on. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, culture is like the place where fundamental values are. Shared, they're passed yep. on, they're facilitated, they're affirmed. It's the stuff that would be in a community, even if there was no state, or if there was no there was no apparatus we called the government. Even if it was just a small little town, whose equivalent of a government was like uh, you know a band of people deciding under the oak tree, you know, like right, something right, like that. right. Still, there would be culture. It's the containment of all the values that they have. It's the means by which the values get shared, how they get facilitated, how they get affirmed how they uh, survive, how they flourish, hopefully how they enrich.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> and they build up the community, don't they? they yeah. They're shared uh, values. And so we know ourselves and express ourselves by way of our music or our films or our poetry or our...
1: Yeah, it's it's the glue that holds all, all the civilizational stuff together. It's ah. kind of an architecture around it. Very good. You
0: know? yeah. like,
1: like, you know, in arguments about, say... Uh, like, an economy is sort of a thing of human nature and stuff, and it sort of builds up. And there's mechanisms about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those mechanisms may be dependent on what civilization you're a part of, right? How, how far the technology is and so on and so forth, what relations they've got into. But how you behave within those mechanisms and within those sort of, like, ways of understanding stuff or ways of relating to people is shaped by values in some way. Right. Right. Which is why it's important to have sort of a moral architecture around something like an economy or around your government. You know, excellent. There's been a lot of talk in the last, you know, four years, which we are not going to get into. I'm just saying there's been a lot of talk of like there's been regular talk on both sides of the aisle of violating something called constitutional or like political norms. Mm -hmm. Right. Not the violation of laws exactly, Mm -hmm. but the violation of norms. And when we're talking about norms, we're talking about certain values, you know. It's like, well, this isn't really written down. It's just something we always do. Right. Right? If you don't want to talk about the last four years, go back to, like, when FDR, like, ran for president more than twice. There was no rule saying you couldn't run for president more than twice. It was just a norm. Right. You know, one set down by Washington himself, and it was considered really valuable. Like, it's like, yes, this is—look, I could— You know, if I had my druthers and I had the people behind me, I could be president for life, just keep getting elected. But no, that's not how this is supposed to work. I'm going to abdicate power. I'm going to step down, and we're going to do it right. And that was considered normative. Right. But yeah, culture is that big. You know, I keep thinking of like you know container language. I don't know why it's like a container of the values, but it's it's like the facilitator and the thing that transmits it and
0: it has it's a it's a physical manifestation too of these invisible things right so yeah. if you have this idea of honor for example then you write a piece of music that somehow is honorable or mm-hmm. something like that well so what i'm interested in is your phd di- direction when you are you studying the the actual cultural artifacts or are you in a sense Creating a philosophy of how to interpret cultural artifacts. It's the latter one. The latter, yeah.
1: Actually, I've been told by my dissertation chair that what I'm doing is rare or it's strange. It's not out of the norm, it's just like it's rare. And that is usually when they get to my level, you know, a certain mode of reading culture, so to speak, is already kind of assumed, and you're just going to use that mode to give an interesting reading of something, all right? right. And when I say reading, you know, I hope people understand. I'm not just talking about like just an analysis of like a Shakespeare play or something like that, but unpack culture at large. Yes, You know, like other forces around the creation of stuff and trying to understand why things come where they come and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. That's usually how it goes. You get a PhD in this sort of field, you either do it in here's my interesting reading of this stuff we have that hasn't been read this way before you know leather and vellum production in the terms of medieval literature or something like that and how it affected what could and could not be written or something Mm -hmm. like that so you could focus Mm -hmm. on that Mm -hmm. or the other way you go is you find some sort of author or writer or artist that had been ignored and you sort of pull them out right and sort of like Stake your claim, as in revealing this person who, and, and saying why they're super important to like literature and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's usually those two tracks. What I'm doing is, as the kids in my day used to say, is being more meta, I guess, because I'm pulling back and I'm I'm not looking at culture with a lens. I'm trying to step back and look at the lens.
0: Right. Right. Gotcha. Right.
1: So as my the reason my dissertation chair said it was rare is because I, what I'm doing is what he calls a pure theory. Dissertation. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to read a particular cultural artifact. I'm trying to read the reading, uh-huh. if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. In a particular kind of reading, assessing the reading, and, you know, positing my own. Like, positing, like, well, my own sort of thoughts on it. So, you're
0: analyzing the way people analyze. mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Basically, which is a thing you do. I mean, that's technically... What theory is when we get into like literary studies or literature studies. If you go into a literature track in college, kids out there, if you go into a literature track in college, it's you know at some point you'll probably take a theory and criticism class, and you'll get like a big anthology that says like the you know the the anthology of theory and criticism, mm-hmm. and you're like, what's the difference between theory and criticism, right? And the way I explain it is that criticism. You know, if you're doing it with books, so like, so you're studying literature, criticism looks at a book, Mm -hmm. theory looks at criticism. Gotcha. Right? That's how that works. Theory, you know, criticism is like, I'm going to read this book this way and pull this stuff out of it because I'm reading it this way, while theory says, well, why are you reading it that way?
0: Uh huh. Excellent. Yeah. Good distinction
1: pure theory is to me to look at the theory mm-hmm. from the position of maybe another theory and say well why are you reading criticism that way why are you evaluating criticism that way because there's a ju- there's always a judgment made all right when you're crit- when you're analyzing something you know it's not just like a pure blank detached disinterested thing you're making a judgment about like the things you pull out the things you emphasize versus things you don't emphasize that's right that doesn't necessarily mean anything sinister is going on it's just you know you you see the things that you think are really important and you pull them out and usually theory is supposed to be the self reflective or the the fancy term is self reflexive uh, people didn't see my little jazz move there to show my sarcasm towards that term. But it's supposed to be self-reflective and thinking about, well, why do we read it this way? Is there better ways to read it? You know, I am explaining it all in very benign terms, because it should be benign. This should be just basic, like, okay, we read cultural artifacts because it's important to, you know, read them in the sense of understanding them and analyzing them. But you know what? It's also good to be self-reflective and analyze our analysis and try to understand it. And even on my level, you know, sometimes it's good to step back and reflect upon our how we've been reflecting and think about like, is there even better? The meta-meta. Yeah, the meta-meta.
0: Well, I think there's, every, every subject needs to have a philosophy of that subject. Yes. The, the history is like that. You have to have a philosophy of history before you can actually do the hard work of analyzing history and making sense of, of what happened.
1: And that's what a literary theory is. It's basically a philosophy of a particular kind of criticism
0: sure, or something. Sure, that makes sense. Well, that sounds like it's perfect for what I'm thinking about, because I, this this idea, this, this sort of neo-Marxist, if I can use that term, I, idea that in the t- early 20th century, we have a kind of a, a school of thought that comes to be that, that we're calling critical theory, mm-hmm. right? And I just love to hear your uh, what you've been reading and how you make sense of uh, that idea.
1: Yeah, so what I've been specifically doing with my PhD is, you know, generally it's like looking at the way we've been reading, how we read. Specifically, it's the default mode of reading how you read okay the default sort of theory Mm -hmm. is some kind of critical theory Mm. all right the technical term for it off these days is called critique all right some kind of critique and when i talk about there is a specific thing in intellectual history that is called critical theory that comes right out of the Frankfurt School, I mean, that's what they called it. You know, that's what Max Horkheimer from the Frankfurt School called it critical theory versus traditional theory. Right, right. But as it comes down to today, you, can't, you have to be careful because it's no longer a particular kind of methodology. It's more a certain position and mood towards, a certain kind of attitude or disposition towards culture. Okay. that informs your specific kind of methodology. Now, I would that's the typical line most people say today. I agree with that. And I add to it that there are certain general practices that are still kind of across the board, even though they get used differently depending on the different things they are. But critical theory with like a lower C and lower T or critique is the sort of default mode of like how you study things. This is it, I mean, you'll take a literary theory class and you'll talk about it, but for the most part, when you're in a literature class, for the most part, I mean, the winds may be changing, but for the most part, there's no questioning of it. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no. It's just assumed.
0: It's just these. It,
1: this is this is how you read literature. This is how you read culture. This is how this is how you be big smart. All right. This is this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. And I. Man, well, what are the elements of that assumption then? I'll unpack the like historical substance of where these things come from but there's a general if I could generalize it it's a general a general suspiciousness towards culture All towards culture towards culture and towards particular readings of culture okay right Towards, towards like particular artifacts but also particular kinds of criticism particular ways of reading okay right there's a suspicion there remember I said that you know, when you're doing a particular criticism, when you're doing a particular analytical reading of something, trying to understand it, there's judgments being made. You know, you're focusing on what's important and stuff. Right. But I said there's not necessarily anything sinister going on, right? right? Right. Well, critique, critical theory, assumes something sinister is going on. Ah. Okay, it assumes that, you know if you're emphasizing one thing over another, then you're trying to hide something. Oh, I see. You're trying to erase something or you're trying to cover something up or you're mm-hmm. you're trying to blind people to something. You're, you know, and if, and because all different kinds of reading basically can have that effect because everybody have different judgments, then you can't let criticism get monolithic. You know, it has to be, oh. we have to have like a ton of different viewpoints to get a more comprehensive view. Okay. Because everybody is like, You know, emphasizes something and others don't. And so maybe you get a balanced view. If you have a monoculture, right, a monolithic thing when it comes to criticism, then you'll only ever see the same things over and over and over again and you'll miss things. And if that becomes, you know, structural that's like the important thing it becomes part of the systems it becomes part of the institutions by which we pass on culture then it actually becomes kind of oppressive it becomes uh-huh. like it, it's not just that you don't see it it's that it's almost like you can never see it like there's all kinds of other stories and viewpoints that just get completely eliminated mm-hmm. from the get-go mm-hmm. and so critique's assumption is that the way we've done criticism, which is the way we've sort of analyzed culture and thought about culture, which is to say, the way we've thought about our values and the transmission of our values is necessarily suspect. It's necessarily hiding something. It's necessarily been one way for so long that that one way is ensconched in places of power and authority to make sure it's one way is the only thing that gets seen. Mm-hmm. And so it assumes there's some sort of vast, monolithic, singular thing, singular way of seeing. And what it wants to do is to break that up. <laughs> All right? it, wants, it wants to look at it and, and basically, I mean... There's, like, your good old, like, basic deconstructive approach where you try and point out, like, inconsistencies and contradictions in that one way of saying. Mm-hmm. You, you look at, if you want to do a, a good old deconstructive reading of say something and not, like, have your mind boggled by whatever the heck Derrida was trying to talk about, you just look at a piece of literature. You look at a standard reading, some sort of accepted, received reading of it,
0: mm-hmm. all right,
1: whatever it is. And then you show how that piece of work not only doesn't really fit with that reading but actively cuts against it. Mm. Right, that's the deconstructive part of it. Right, right, right. And so you show that, no, 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 these ways of reading, they're not good enough. As a matter of fact, they're you know, patently false. Like they're probably not the way to look at it, or at least they're not the way to look at it. So you could go deconstructive. The other way is uh, you could find and try to unearth and bring back the viewpoints Uh, that had been silenced, you know, like, see what my quotation marks making with my hands. had been silenced, had been pushed outside. You know what, there's a completely, there's a way to read Hamlet that we've forgotten about because, you know, uh, you know, to put it as unfairly as possible, they didn't want you to know about it or whatever Uh it is. There is a strong, I'll get to that later, but there is a strong kind of paranoia that goes with this type of thinking. Wow. Uh, but th- that's two ways. You can either like deconstruct a reading by saying like the work cuts against it, uh, or find alternative views of reading something that didn't fit into the monolithic way of doing things.
0: Well, on one level, I think I can understand why that would carry some weight, because human beings, I think, are sinful, and we are. Deceitful, we are uh, sort of mono uh, maniacal in some ways, and we and we might exclude certain. Things and people and and all that. So it's 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 not inherently a bad idea no, to question and to look into and it's not sort of checks and balances of different uh, critical theories,
1: right? Right. My my dissertation chair said. I mean, he said that you know there's a reason this stuff exploded in like the '70s and '80s, and it was because it was super exciting. It was like mm. all like he said in the '80s, he was a quote hardcore deconstructionist. Oh yeah, because it was so exciting. It was like there's all it felt like there was so many possibilities now you know all the old ways of reading that everybody just kind of learned you know uh it was not, what was it uh, i can't remember how terry eagleton put it but he's like he said it was no longer it's no longer good enough to say that milton was a doughty spirit and keats was sublime or something like that it's like it's now uh-huh. wide open there's all kinds of new tracks and new opportunities and new ways to go so there was a air of like excitement that revitalized the study of literature and the yeah. study of culture in a lot wow. of ways because wow. it felt like there was new stuff. So, And it's important to point that out because one thing that has been emphasized to me in studying this and being amongst people who not only study this stuff but also take it seriously is you know, why is it that people who are genuinely intelligent and you know, genuinely people of good faith could buy into something that in my analysis is not only wrong but is dangerous? Mm-hmm. Like How? And if you just sort of stay outside of it and just look at it and analyze it on your own and outside of it and outside the circles who practice it or go into it, you can come to the conclusion that they must be all like, either they're crazy or they know they're doing something evil and therefore they're wicked
0: or mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm.
1: And what I found is that the problem with a lot of this stuff, okay, with critical theory, with, you know, all kinds of things that are not good, philosophy not good worldviews not good ideologies not good ways of thinking is that the reason they can catch on with people is because there's something in them that is true and good or playing off of something that's true and good yeah there's something there there's something and that's oftentimes what gives them their teeth and oftentimes can make it really hard to argue against it if you haven't really thought about it enough i mean if you came i mean like just like like you just said that sounds like a good thing, like to have all these different sort of perspectives, sort of balancing and maybe giving us a fuller view. I mean, you know, I mean that's isn't that a good thing? Isn't it good to have all these multiple perspectives? So what's the problem? And there is a problem.
0: <laughs> there is a problem.
1: Not with the multiple perspectives, but a certain assumption about the multiple perspectives. Well, what would that be? Well uh, well, I'm glad you asked that on. <laughs> This is the part where if I was smoking a pipe, I would just like, you know, put it in my mouth and be like, well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> because now we have to we have to back up. In order for me to explain this part, I gotta back up. Let's start with uh, Hegel. Okay. All right, let's start with Hegel. They say he's a German philosopher. I think he was more Prussian because there wasn't any Germany around for most of his life uh, before then. But he was a big like German philosopher. He's considered an idealist philosopher, which, uh, around his time, which was the turn in the nineteenth century, like the early 1800s, idealism uh, meant uh, mind was mind was before matter All right? there was some sort of you know non material intelligent existence prior to material existence, and material existence is kind of grounded in it and so, right. so forth right. you know, Platonism is like the classic Western view of like idealism everything is grounded in the forms and Hegel took a modernist view of things, a modernist view. And when I say modernist, I'm talking like the sort of modern philosophy that starts with Descartes. Mm -hmm. And Descartes like tries to ground everything in the individual person, in the individual subject. Right. Rather than focusing on like being itself or trying to understand that way, Descartes is like, well, you know, our perception of things is filtered through us, like our own perception. So it's like, we need to like, how do we know we're not being deceived? Yes. Right. So his ideas about the dream and the demon, how do we know everything's not just a dream? How do we know everything's not just a dream whispered to us by a demon? Like how do we know, how do we verify? And so everything in modern philosophy is centered on the subject, as it's called, the individual person and perception.
0: And that's where you get the cogito.
1: Yeah, that's where you get the cogito, the ergo cogito sum, I think therefore I am. Right, exactly. Uh, So Hegel is an inheritor, you know, like every other sort of modern philosopher that came before him and all the ones that came after him is a sort of inheritor of this, like, grounding everything in the individual subject. And this, of course, raises the question of, like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be an individual person? Sure. And a big one in modern thought was, well, to be a subject, to be a person, to be a, or as Hegel would put it, to be spirit, all right, is to be free, all right? It's, it's, it's a kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom to... Uh, know yourself fully, to fully reflect upon yourself and actually know who you are, you know, know what you are. Animals don't have that capacity, neither does plant life. Human beings are the only ones who have it uh, because we too are spirit. There was a sort of Christian theology kind of going on in Hegel's thing. It's a little (laughs) distorted, but there definitely was a sense of like, you know, we are, in the image of, or an extension of, or however you would put it, we are spirit because we come from spirits. Capital S. Capital right. S. Spirit. Who, you know, is God. God, the ultimate freedom. Ultimately free. And Hegel puts forth a vision of life and society. I'm really compressing Hegel here. But he sure. puts forth a okay. vision of society and history and whole everything that is based on spirit trying to self-realize, to know itself, through self-actualization which is you do something in the world something concrete in the world that is truly authentically you all right it really is it's 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 an action that is from you and thus because it's from you it speaks you back to yourself Uh uh-huh all right let's know yourself so like you know i i I think in like artistry terms i guess but
0: sure you 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 write a story and it it speaks to you, back to you, what you thought.
1: Yeah, and you like, you understand, you hear, you. oh, that's my voice. Like, that's what it sounds like. Or William Faulkner said that, uh, I never know what I really think about something until I read what I've written about it. Uh-huh. That kind of thing. It's like, uh-huh. you finally, you, you get to know yourself through your actions, through your actions mm-hmm. in the world. That makes sense. Uh, now, Hegel had a whole bunch of other stuff that came out of that. It's like, you're not really free until you really know yourself. You can't really know yourself unless you can authentically actualize yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you do an action that's authentically you Now. For Hegel, the only way you could authentically actualize yourself is in what he called ethical living, in ethical society. Because we're, you know, he was a good old philosophical traditionalist on this point. We're meant to live in society. We're meant to live in community. And thus whatever actions you take have to be in reference to and in deference to others. Uh Uh-huh. And if you do an action that isn't, it's not really authentic because you need to see, the best place you can see yourself reflected is in others Mm. because they're like you, Mm. right? They're you. They're also human beings. They're also spirit, right? So your actions need to be in deference to them. You need to treat them how you would want to be treated. Ah. And that teach you something about you. So there's all kinds of other stuff to go on that and some stuff to say for it, some stuff to say against it. Hegel, get, a lot of stuff gets put at Hegel's feet, mm-hmm. including like all the atrocities of the 20th century get put at his feet because of his view of the state. Like the state is sort of the ultimate ethical society. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is he gives us this vision of human beings that he takes from modern philosophy and from German romanticism. Mm-hmm. And he puts them together, this vision of to be human, to be fully human, you must be free. But to be free is to know yourself because you do authentic action. Okay. Right, so, you got that idea. Okay. Okay. Marx comes along. Mm-hmm. All right. And if you want to understand critique, there's usually three people you have to understand foundationally, all right? It's Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. All right. That's how Paul Ricourt, who was a philosopher, I think I'm saying his last name right, I think it was French, philosopher in the 20th century, he wrote a book called Freud and Philosophy. Uh, and it, he's the guy who gave us the idea of what's called the hermeneutics of suspicion. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know if he actually said that term, but he talked about a type of hermeneutics, a type of interpretation that comes from what he called the school of suspicion. Mm-hmm. And he said that the masters of suspicion were Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Ricord is right that critical theories and critiques, which are necessarily suspicious readings of culture, are grounded in these three guys in some way. Mm-hmm. So, but why talk about Hegel? Well, because in some ways, modern philosophy after Hegel has been, in a lot of ways, a response to him or dealing with him. That's why he's considered so huge. Marx comes along and does somebody called, uh, or I think Marx and Engels called it this, but they turn Hegel on his head, which is to say, they bought the whole self-realization, self-actualization Usually in some sort of dialectical interaction with things and people. But instead of it being based on idealism, that's the realization of spirit, they based it on materialism. Uh-huh. And that before everything is matter. And matter is necessarily dialectical, so to speak. It's necess- which is to say it's necessarily creative. All right? It's opposing forces clashing and creating something new. Mm -hmm. And then that new thing creates new opposing forces and they clash and so on and so forth. And that's at the root of Hegel's thinking. Right. Is that dialectic. Although he had it as the dialectic is in like the spirit. It's your freedom of your like soul, your mind. It's really hard to figure out what the heck he meant by spirit. All right? In German, it was just Geist. It's like Mm -hmm. ghost. But whatever. It's like the spiritual aspect of us. For Marx, that was an inherent part of material reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And human beings are the ultimate production of matter, all right? Production is at the very heart of existence itself, because that's what matter is. And production doesn't just mean like mass production or the production of goods. It's almost like a, a Marxist equivalent of creativity, of like creation, okay. right? You can create things, you can make things. And human beings are the highest form of matter okay. so far. Because we're the part of matter that can reflect upon itself and can recognize itself as as a producer, that we have the power to produce. Mm-hmm. Now, other animals and creatures can produce and create. I mean, beavers build dams. Certain monkeys use tools. Uh, certain animals have means of communication, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But as Chesterton put it when talking about like a chimp and their hands, you know, he so said, chimps have hands like we have hands. But... Compared to us, they do next to nothing with them, mm. right? Something, there's something chasmic between us and the rest of animal life where we're able to do stuff that is either nothing they would do, or even if it is something they do, we are just blow it out of the water. We do it way beyond what they could do. And for Marx, we're self-reflective. We can reflect on ourselves and we can think about what we're doing and go forward.
0: Does it sound to you like that's kind of assuming a kind of Darwinian uh, evolutionary theory, too? It, that yeah. material somehow has grown to the point of producing a self-conscious man, yeah, conscious, you can't, self-aware you man? Can't
1: understand, that's an, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. You can't understand a lot of 19th century modern philosophy and thought without thinking of the sort of Darwinian revolution that came along.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which, to be fair to Darwin, I don't think he thought this. But there are people who looked at the Darwinian idea of like... Of evolution, of like creatures becoming better and better over time, uh, and saw in it not just some sort of like biologically descriptor, but actually some sort of metaphysical principle about existence. Right. And this is where you get like the myth of progress, you know, in the sense of like a grand controlling narrative that existence itself is this upper climbing transformation of things getting better and better and trying to work out the best way to do it and making mistakes but learning from the mistakes and getting better and better uh, I think the
0: I think the 18th century enlightenment mind wanted something like that a theory like that that could explain material progress without uh, any kind of supernatural aspect don't you think yeah, yeah. and then when Dar- Darwin came up with his Really, a far more modest theory than the the sort of metaphysical thing you're talking about. It was latched onto rather quickly. I mean, they were saying, hey, finally we've got somebody in the science world that can support our our kind of longing for and search for a uh, a, a godless explanation.
1: Yeah, it's like, because everybody, they were all smart enough to know that if you want to explain existence, you have to have some kind of first principle. Right. Right. Or the way I put it, like when I read, when I was reading Aristotle, it's like politics goes back to ethics, ethics goes back to metaphysics. Mm -hmm. So you gotta gotta have some sort of first principles. And metaphysics is connected to physics because Aristotle looked at the world and tried to figure out principles of the world and then said, okay, but why is the world like this? Was the world revealing us some sort of fundamental principle?
0: Right, why is a quite different question than how.
1: And for, you know, a long time in the Western world, God was the fundamental principle, right? He's the reason the world, you know, is what it is or you know uh and even like stuff that's distortions and and like the fall and sin there's still something god is doing about that Mm -hmm. and there's an explanation that has god connected to it in some way
0: right right and that and you still see threads of that echoes of that in hegel yeah but you don't see it in Marx.
1: you don't see it in Marx. and hegel you at least got spirit with a capital s and we are like manifestation of spirit like specifically it's not pantheistic necessarily but we're like specific individuals but we're still like connected to it somehow Mm -hmm. but it's spirit that's like trying to realize itself Mm -hmm. like history is spirit with a capital s trying to realize itself through its big self-actualization in the world which means god is trying to know himself through, like, history? Like, that, that that's, that's where it goes all screwy. It's it a little squirrely, right. But at least he had the sense of, like, well, whatever the foundational principle is, it needs to be something metaphysical. Right. But Marx comes along and says, no, you don't need that, all right? Matter itself is enough of a, I don't think you put it this way, but it's enough of a God term. You know, if you attribute to matter fundamental, transformative, creative powers, so to speak, I mean, it's undirected and... Unthinking right but still that 's what Marx does when he tries to make it dialectic that 's what new materialists today there is a school of thought called new materialism does when they try to like apply like deleuze 's weird metaphysics about like i don't know emanating intensities or something like that it 's the same thing it's like we have to give to material existence a core that is as if I, now I'm putting the nail too sharp on that, but it's like, we need to give to material existence a core as dynamic and creative as the Trinity itself, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we need. Mm. So we don't have to have the Trinity. Mm. So we don't have to have God. We Mm. can just have this. Mm -hmm. So Mark says-
0: So it's the same idea. It's just trying to explain the world and all all the dynamics and the progress and so on without having to make resort to revelation with anything
1: like that. Yeah, it's basically, it's trying to like, I don't know, do God without God? Yeah. Basically, kind, of,
0: kind of. In a way. It's interesting, though, that the, that the shape of the vacuum is still God. <laughs> and, it, and it needs to be filled with something as big as God. As big as God. You know, to be able to explain everything.
1: So if we're like the highest production of matter because we can self reflect, but also means we can, by self reflection, take control of our own production, right? We can actually right. actively shape what we do. Yeah. yeah. And for Marx and Marxism, uh, classical Marxism, but honestly, Marxism even to this day. That's fundamentally what it means to be human. And part of the dignity and wonder of a human being is we're this material entity that can actually shape its own production. Right. right? right. And again, production sounds like a purely economic term, like you know, mass production. But they mean like you can take your own labor and shape the world according to your own vision.
0: Right, right, right. Right. You
1: can do it deliberately, like you can think about. No other animal can do that compared to us.
0: It seems to me that goes straight into what you know—the sort of brave new world mindset that we have, that we've just been talking about, where where Huxley was seeing how. You could even sh- use that ability to shape production to shape human beings.
1: Yeah. Future
0: like, generations. I may be jumping over some of the things you no, want no, to talk it's, about.
1: It's like you get into like C.S. Lewis's abolition of man. Abolition like, of man. You know, can we... Conquer, that hideous strength. Can we conquer nature? Can we conquer human nature? It's... I mean, look. Again, like I said, truth and something true and good gets mixed up in all of this. Yeah. All right? If you just take it as this image of human beings as uniquely special because we are deliberately creative, in the sense of we can create things. There's a dignity in that, mainly because right. it's an echo of the Im- image of God. Right. right? That's, that's what they're kind of talking about. It's like a secular atheist version of the image of God. mm mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. If you just stop there, you can understand why people would be on board with that. Human beings are not, you know, I mean, in, in like their caricatured versions of like capitalism or something like that, you can see how they could like, you know, human beings are not supposed to be cogs in a machine. Right. At the whims of some owner up there and no you're meant to create your own stuff and like build your own life and there's something ennobling and dignifying about that idea the question is if we are uniquely positioned to shape matter exactly how far can we go with that mm-hmm. are there limits to how we can shape matter mm-hmm. like either normative or even normative or even just ontological like no reality won't bend that way
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the question, right? That's when you start thinking about that. That's where you can get into like, in you know, in Brave New World. Well, why not? Why not? You know, figure out where we could like. I mean, because human beings are uniquely positioned to shape material entities and material forces, but we're also material entities and material. Forces. Right. Right. So, what's to stop us from shaping each other?
0: It's always some material things shaping other material things. Yeah, that's right. And engineering at the DNA level. Uh, uh, manipulating material at the DNA level. This,
1: this has created always a chicken chicken or the egg problem in Marxism that I don't think they solve because I don't think they can solve. But it is this question of, are you really free in hmm. the Marxist system? Because in the Marxist system, everything is reducible to material entities that are reducible to material forces. Okay, They're produced by material forces. And even though human beings are themselves a material force, like they can shape other entities, they can even shape themselves and their neighbors. They also are a material entity that's shaped by material forces that can be at the hands of others, but also just existence itself. There's a a strong logical trajectory towards determinism in Marxism that just seems to kind of undercut the freedom. And they know this, when I say they, I mean like Marxist other generations know this, and they've always tried to find a way to get around it somehow, Mm. I'm not going to prosecute that case. I don't think they have and I don't think they can because materialism, in my view, always undercuts freedom. Mm -hmm. If everything is reducible to matter and material forces, then there is no stopping determinism Mm. on any level.
0: And really in line with Lewis's argument at the end of Abolition of Man that that if if we conquer nature The only thing we do is conquer ourselves and allow our nature to conquer us. So we become enslaved to the very appetites that we freed, in a sense, in the world. Huh? Nice. I, I, I'm curious, to, too, I, and I and hope we're not taking you too far from your path here. We're not. It sounds like I'm going too far, but trust yeah. me, this all... It all works. It all comes back together. What I'm thinking is, not only is it a question of how does the material bend, how, can, how, how far can I go with, with the mage- uh, adjustment of the material, but the question is a metaphysical question. What ought the material to be shaped into, right? right. And that's a step back from it all and asking you know who informs my like you're talking about your critical theory or your critical uh, your critique right it's notion the value judgment how do you where what values do you bring to the shape of material what what kind of world ought we, we make exactly
1: and there is still this is where like mark still has his debt to Hegel, and that is well he buys into the idea that we are fundamentally we're not spirit but we're free like we're supposed to be able to self-realize through self-actualization we're still supposed to be able to do that Mm -hmm. which leads to all the other stuff you know the only way you can self-actualize the only way you can authentically actualize is if you can do an action that's authentically yours but that means you you got to be able to free you have to be free you got to be able in in a material sense you have to be free you have to you have to be able to do something that's your own vision with your own stuff. It's not somebody else's vision. It's not somebody else's stuff. Mm. And there you have the whole, like, alienation of the worker from their work and stuff like that. Because a worker in a factory is building somebody else's stuff for somebody else's vision. Right. So they can't self-actualize. And the owner of the factory also technically can't self-actualize because although they have the vision and the material to bring it about, it's other people that are doing it. Uh Uh Uh-huh. And so that was was sort of classical Marxism's fundamental critique of, like, 19th century capitalism, which is kind of not the same of what we have today. But that was his fundamental critique is it created the, a society where you had a bunch of owners who owned the means to produce, which means they owned the means to create and thus the means to actualize. and then a bun- But they didn't do any actualization. They didn't do any work. mm mm-hmm. And then you had a bunch of workers who did all the working and did all the actualizing, but it was somebody else's vision and somebody else's thing. So both sides, you have a society that keeps both people, owners and workers, haves and have-nots, trapped in a state of alienation from themselves. Mm. They can never realize their true potential. And, of course, Marx is like, because, again, because human beings are what we are, because we're meant for, self-realization self-actualization, this situation is untenable and that's why revolution always happens. Mm. You know, it happens because the way things, the way the means of production, the way the means, if you think of means of production as just economic stuff, then it just really sounds like Marx is just an economics thing. But if you think of means of production as the means by which you can authentically actualize yourself. That's a good point. To own your own well, I don't know about your own property because Marxism is weird about that, but right, to own but, like, I don't know, to, to have some sort of equal share in the means to actualize yourself. Yeah, right. That's how you're truly free. And bec- all societies have had this sort of like those who own it and those who work it, and it's always untenable. So it always leads to revolution and people who used to be workers now become the owners, but they create a new economy that becomes on and on and on and on. Capitalism is the next phase. It's not tenable. Workers are not going to put up with this forever. And there's going to be a revolution, and it's going to cause a new order to emerge, which will be a dictatorship of the workers that would lead to socialism. And socialism would still be a kind of have-have-not scenario, except that the haves would be like common ownership through the government. And as the government kind of you know, is the mechanism by which you equalize things, you start like, making things more common, then the government will start to fade away. The state will start to fade away the reason why is because according to marx's theory states only exist governments only exist to serve the needs of the haves all mm. right because the haves and their vision for things is how all the economic stuff gets organized it's how we organize our society is around you know their ownership of stuff mm-hmm. so the only reason we have a state is because they're there to enforce to enforce the will of the owner class, basically. Thus, if you have a state that slowly is like equalizing ownership, then you have a state that's slowly dissolving itself. And eventually you would have communism, which is the stateless society, mm-hmm. all right, which is why, for. right? Which is why it's a classless society, all right? Because it's a stateless society because it's a classless society. There are no more haves and have-nots. Therefore, there's no need for a state. It doesn't necessarily mean there's not any government. There's actually a distinction between like a government and a state, which is another discussion. But that's why there's no state. It's because there's no more classes. There's no more haves and have-nots. Everybody has equal ownership of the means of production, which means everybody has equal ability to actualize themselves authentically, which means now everyone can be free. Yeah. All right? So that's like the classic sort of Marxist vision. Wow. Wow. There are other angles and problems and issues, like the idea that technically speaking, even though communism was what Marx was aiming for, logically speaking he can't say that that's actually the end. Because, uh, you know, the material dialectic keeps on going. Keeps right? On going. going, So on he that. can't actually say that communism is the end. It's just like the next step and it'll be a better step. But he can't say it's the end. Mm-hmm. And that also raises questions about like, well yeah, human beings are the highest form of career, you know, whatever for now. Well, what if something comes down the road? You know, we produce something that's the next phase in, like, progress. I mean, logically speaking, shouldn't our whole existence and way of life kind of collapse before the new? Th- There's mm-hmm. all kinds of things mm-hmm. that get raised about the idea of this inevitable progress. But well, that's basic well, classical Marxism.
0: Well, take us from that into the Frankfurt School and what happens in the 20th century and why it is that they expanded their notion of of, uh, classical Marxism to include the culture. We're going to stop here, as it's a good stopping point, and let you catch your breath. We will pick up here next week as we enter into the 20th century chapter of the history of the idea of critical theory, starting with Antonio Gramsci in Italy and with the Frankfurt School in Germany. And then we hope to get to how this idea is influencing the present culture. So thanks for listening. Please contact us with comments and questions by emailing me at director at And don't forget, we'll soon be accepting applications for next fall's gap year program. If you'd like to hear more about that, then um, read up about us on the website, centerws.com. Uh, and there's an application online available for you if you're interested in filling that out. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you have. And our online humanities seminar that we mentioned at the first is still available. Subscribers receive links uh, to the remaining live sessions and links to access to the recordings of the ones that they've missed. Just contact us here at director at and we will put you on the list to receive the links. Looking forward to having you there. Thanks again for listening. This is John Hodges from the Center. We'll see you next time.